0: Study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill, you are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live in me, world without end, Amen. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, scholar of medieval literature and former Arizonan currently dwelling in Colorado. I'm so glad you joined me for episode four in the Lent series, The Many Faces of Jesus. Each week, I've been considering a medieval version of Jesus, a representation in literature, art, or theology, popular before the Reformation. So far, we've thought about Jesus the Judge Jesus our lover, and Jesus the knight. These versions of Jesus may be strange, silly, scary, or inspiring to us today. Above all, they challenge us to consider the versions of Jesus we encounter in our own culture. Many of them capture important aspects of Jesus in the church that we overlook. None of these episodes comprehensively present these images. Think of them like little introductions that you can dive further into on your own. I hope that as we draw closer to Easter, their aesthetic beauty gives you joy too. This episode discovers Jesus of the University. Of course, this doesn't mean that medieval people thought of Jesus as a student going to classes. We meet this Jesus in the language of scholasticism, the university theology written and taught by men like Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, and Occam. I say men deliberately. Scholasticism was an educated, male dominated movement of thought because women couldn't go to university during the medieval era. Some women writers were certainly influenced by scholasticism. Julian of Norwich uses some fascinating and scholastic inflected language, but it was primarily a boys' club, propagated in the particular setting of the 13th and 14th century university the foundations of the modern university dwell in scholasticism, actually. Universities like Oxford, Cambridge, and the Universities of Paris or Bologna and Salamanca were founded to teach the budding theologians, clerks, and priests of the medieval church. If you're a Protestant, or even if you're a particular kind of Roman Catholic, the name scholasticism may cause you to grimace. Luther, Calvin, and the Reformers hated scholasticism. They viewed it as frivolous, needlessly arcane, uncaring of Christ in the world. In this view, scholastics were the academics ensconced in their ivory tower, debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin while people in the streets below died in ignorance of the basic tenets of the Bible, This prejudice has its roots in truth, despite its exaggeration of both scholasticism and the lack of knowledge of the Bible among ordinary medieval people. Scholasticism was, and is, not very accessible. Its debates and conclusions take place in precise medieval Latin, in an intricate and formidable vocabulary that takes years to understand, acquire, and deploy. Test out a sample and see for yourself. Thomas Aquinas begins his meditations on Jesus in his masterpiece, Summa Theologiae, with the question, Was it fitting that God should become incarnate? I use the Modern English translation by Father Lawrence Shapcote, published by the Aquinas Institute for the Study of Sacred Doctrine. To each thing that is befitting which belongs to it by reason of its very nature. Thus, to reason befits man, since this belongs to him because he is of a rational nature. But the very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysus. Hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness befits God, but it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysus. Hence, it belongs to the essence of the highest good, to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature. And this is brought about chiefly by his so-joining created nature to himself, that one person is made up of these three, the word, a soul, and flesh, as Augustine says in De Trinitate. Hence, it is manifest that it was fitting that God should become incarnate. From the third part of the Summa Theologiae, Question 1, Article 1, Response crystal clear? We're with Thomas, right? It's all manifest now. If I were teaching in front of you right now, you would likely all be gazing at me with that special glass-eyed stare that undergrads have sometimes that means, I have no clue what you're talking about, but I don't even know enough to ask a coherent question, so I'm just going to helplessly and silently stare at you. As a professor, you know class is going very poorly. When that stare comes out, And this is the first question of Thomas's section devoted to Christ. At this point, you may be wearily muttering to yourself that Luther and Calvin and all those 16th century reformers were right. Jesus of the university is too conceptual, too demanding, without a worthwhile payoff. And yet, I'm going to try to convince you otherwise, that scholasticism's strange, specialized, abstract portrait of Jesus actually has a great deal of value for us today. I threw that quote at you as if we could approach it the way we approach a novel or poem, by simply reading it and expecting it to make sense as an isolated unit. After all, this is so often how we read. But it won't work for reading Thomas Aquinas. We have to look outside of narrative and consider Thomas's methodology and his vocabulary In fact, I'm doing something a little different today. I don't expect you to go out and buy a copy of the Summa, though maybe you will, I don't know, as you might with a medieval poem that I share with you. So in order to think about Jesus of the University, I'm going to focus on the manner that Thomas speaks about Jesus, rather than Thomas's actual arguments. Differing sharply from the modern day and, to my mind, typically artificial distinction, Between the sciences and the humanities, Thomas and his fellow schoolmen describe theology as a ciencia. Yes, a science, a body of knowledge pursued through arguments of human reason, limited though such reason may be at times. Their understanding of theology as ciencia does not mean that they believe everything about Christianity is ultimately shown through logical proof. Quite the contrary. Thomas strongly believes in the mystery of much of faith, as well as the ultimate limitations of language, to capture the Godhead. But this idea of theology as scientia, as a science, structures his teaching and his methods of seeking truth. How so? The Summa is split into three large parts, called the primapars, pars, and the pars. Then it is divided further into a series of questions that naturally lead from one to the next. For example, the question I just included is this one from the Tertia Pars. Question one, the fitness of the incarnation. Number one, whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Number two, whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race so that the Word of God should become incarnate. Number three, whether, if man had not sinned, God would have become incarnate? Number four, whether God became incarnate in order to take away actual sin rather than to take away original sin? Number five, whether it was fitting that God should have become incarnate in the beginning of the human race? And number six, whether the incarnation ought to have been put off until the end of the world? It's quite the set of questions. Such individual questions are then broken down even further. For example, Thomas first asks the question whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Then he presents potential answers to this question that he doesn't agree with before he presents his own examination. These answers often include quotes from highly regarded church fathers like Augustine or from esteemed pagan authorities like Cicero or Aristotle. These are not softball oppositional answers that he can then crush to smithereens as we might see with a cheap political speech today. They present real challenges to his argument. He then answers the question with his answer followed by objections to each of the preceding potential answers that he doesn't agree with. This style of conversation in text is called dialectic. Dialectic argument is really important in scholasticism and it's here I want to dwell for a minute. We live in a time that chooses a provocative argumentative style that might be considered the total opposite of dialectic. What will grab attention, make headlines? Who cares if it actually answers your opponent's concerns as long as it makes a splash? The result is a blunt axe of argument. The goal is to own your opponents, not to actually persuade them or answer their worries. When I read Thomas... I'm struck by his attention to his debate opponents and his carefulness to characterize their arguments as strongly as he can. Some readers of Thomas have even noted that sometimes he states his opposition's points better than they themselves do. Thomas believes in the power of rational discovery together. He believes that humankind's reason in the pursuit of truth is how we most closely resemble God— where God's image is found in our souls. In dialectic modes of theology, an argument is never finally closed or concluded. Dialectic is open-ended. While you hopefully arrive at a best answer, it also means that eventually, another, even better answer may emerge through your mutual, rational conversation. The Summa remains fundamentally unfinished and open, albeit more in some places than in others. These features of dialectic help us to understand why the language of scholasticism can be so hard for amateurs like ourselves. Although it may feel like they were deliberately excluding people, certainly many theologians thought that exclusion was a wonderful side effect rather than a detraction. The scholastics thought it critical to share a common vocabulary while employing a dialectical technique so that the debaters could actually debate on an even ground in their attempt to uncover truth. The debates are often about that very vocabulary. The scholastics believed that the more precise the vocabulary, the better they could understand one another and mutually pursue the questions they sought to answer. The result of dialectic-like Thomas's is a theology both incredibly structured and free to discuss a strange and wide array of questions. You've seen a sample of them above, and honestly, most of them I would never have come to on my own. Should God have become a different kind of creature than a man? Is it fitting that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father instead of the left, Should Christ have appeared to the disciples in another shape? Should Christ have been tempted in the desert? How did Christ work miracles? There are a lot of negative things about scholastic theology. It is often misogynistic. It is closed off to a small circle of educated male theologians. It has a highly specialized and technical vocabulary that makes it tricky to enter into as an untrained layperson. it reminds us of some things we have largely forgotten in modernity that I want to highlight right now. Jesus of the University and his translators, Thomas Aquinas and the Scholastic theologians, remind us that how we talk about Jesus is almost as important as what we say about Jesus. Form and matter are not easily separable. Matter, the subject, what you attempt to communicate about God, the message, actually does not exist without the form in which it is conveyed, unless you're God and you are the word, (laughs) and then there's no difference between form and content. Content ultimately matters more than form. That is, something abhorrent will always be abhorrent, though masked, if it is put into compelling form. Lies, racism, nationalist propaganda— But content, too, can become devoid of its meaning if truth is spoken without love and attention. Paul attests to the truth of both of these situations. If I speak with the tongues of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong. 1 Corinthians 13.1 Beautiful language without truthful and loving content, or incredible truth without any charity, given to my would-be audience, create the harsh clanging of meaningless noise. Paul's words apply both ways. This argument is my main point of contention with many of my fellow Christians, especially those on the religious right. Both left and right have been very guilty, but it has been particularly discouraging to watch the widespread turn of evangelicals to the idea that the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how right you are about something—say abortion—if you're screaming your moral outrage absent of love and attention. We are in a desperate situation, especially those of us who are Americans. I can't speak for you in other countries. We don't know how to disagree with one another. The body of Christ is broken, rent with divisions of all kinds. I say we because I think Literally every Christian I know—honestly, probably every person, Christian or not—is in a muddle with friends, family members, other Christians, people who believe different things. For Christians, the final goal is not persuasion. The final goal is to love your God and love your neighbor, which looks different in its many contexts. And something else is clear. Jesus specifically tells us to love our enemies, even in argument Thomas Aquinas provides a way for us into thinking about how to have meaningful and charitable argument without sacrificing rigor or truth. How can we imitate Jesus of the University? I'm trying to practice these when I imitate scholastic theology in the Jesus discussed in the medieval university. And I've numbered these in the spirit of scholasticism. Number one. Find a common vocabulary on which you can agree. It might only be one word. Make sure others know what you mean when you use a particular word, especially words that have been thrown around indiscriminately or used intentionally to sow hatred. If you can find a common ground in your speech and agree on the definitions of some key words, that's already a place from which you can both work to understand one another and moreover constitutes an act of charity towards the other person. Number two, Thomas is almost ludicrously intentional with his language. Scholastics believed in the power of particular words so strongly, they argued that disordered speech was the biggest path into heresy, into speaking lies about God. The same is true of people. Careless, disordered speech causes pain and rifts beyond your control or intention. If someone is sensitive about a word or phrase you use— don't scold, deride, or mock. Change your words if it does not affect the truth of what you are attempting to communicate. Give room. Think of this as an opportunity for loving attention, helping your enemy to understand you and loving them well. Number three, Thomas doesn't waste time on bad arguments. Some people don't argue in good faith. They argue to provoke they argue to ridicule, or they argue to prove something about themselves and it has actually nothing to do with you or your debate. These are a waste of time to engage seriously. Thomas engages serious arguments in good faith as a journey in seeking truth together. Number four. Thomas characterizes his appoint- opponents and their views with charity. Oof. We all know that we win arguments best if we don't do that, if we cast aside the best part of our opponent's points to engage with the weakest. We must learn to engage with all their points, strong and weak. Thomas shows us that if we are seeking truth in ourselves and our communities, it's simply not enough to pounce on weakness. We must answer their strong points with honesty and clarity. But what would it look like to characterize, say, a sexist argument with charity? Here we must creatively use an updated version of scholastic thinking rather than Thomas himself, who certainly held misogynistic views characteristic of the times. Don't let that sexist point slide. Characterizing with charity doesn't mean to let someone off the hook. It does mean that if they say something worth listening to alongside the sexism— You want to take that one part seriously, even while identifying and rejecting that sexism. Number five, in a conversation with high stakes, do participate. Do state your opinions clearly, firmly, humbly, carefully, and charitably. I have to admit, this one is actually the hardest one of all for me. I'm so tempted to just slide by in conversations when I'm uncomfortable. I don't like conflict, and honestly, I don't really like taking a strong stance. Much to my shame, I have heard people say racist things, and I've kept silent. I've been discriminated against as a woman and simply faded away to nurse my anger alone. Outside of these more provocative moments— People have said things to me that would have been the jumping-off point for a great conversation and mutual seeking of truth. And I avoided it, because I do not always like to talk about hard things even outside of conflict. Thomas Aquinas believes in the power of asking and seeking together, and he always, always states his thoughts on these difficult questions. He does so with care and attention, but he does not draw back When things get difficult, Elie Wiesel, the writer and Holocaust survivor, wrote, We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. You don't need to constantly argue. Please don't, actually, that's a whole new issue. But when your conscience is at stake, or justice, or love, or the safety and peace of others— speak. Which of these tips from Thomas do you find the easiest? Which do you find the most difficult? How can you practice them in your day-to-day interactions with others? Thanks for thinking with me on this challenging and interesting topic, and thank you, Thomas Aquinas, for helping us think through how we speak and engage difficult ideas and conversations. Next week, we'll be thinking about Jesus, our mother, one of my favorite, favorite images in medieval theology.